Good morning. We'll be reading from Acts chapter 11, verses 19 through 30. And the word of the Lord reads, Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose after Stephen traveled as far as Phenosia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there was some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of our God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch the disciples were first called Christians. Now in these days prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. And one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined, everyone according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. Amen. Expect for some of you, and probably a lot of you, uh, Woodland Middle School is all you know of, of East Point Church. Some of you don't know that on uh, December 15th, of uh, 2013, that was our last uh, time meeting in uh, a building that we had been meeting in for about three years. It was a building that we had grown accustomed to and we thought that we would spend a, a great deal of the life of East Point Church, the remainder of the life of East Point Church there. But as God would have it on December 15th, it served as our last worship service at that building, and at that time, we weren't really sure where we were going to go, but God provided Woodland Middle School, and so here we are. Now, there was a lot of questions and anxieties, I'm sure, about what was going to happen, what was God going to do. There were several, several questions about what God was doing. Well, on um, February, in February of this, of this year, 2014, we started home fellowship groups where we, uh, we decided to do these home fellowship groups because to make up for the times that we weren't going to have during the week at the building that we were meeting. And over these last, call it 10, 10 months, 9, 10 months, we have seen God do an amazing work through the home fellowship group. Many of you have expressed how you have just felt connected in a way that you did not feel connected before. You are building community in ways that you did not build before. Do you know that home fellowship groups were nowhere on our radar? <laughs> they were nowhere on our radar while we were at East Point Press. But in God's providence, he would move us out of East Point Press and provide an opportunity for us to start home fellowship groups that would encourage the body, that would encourage the saints. 
and has made a huge difference in your life. If you have been a Christian for any length of time and you find yourself dealing with the complexities and the scenarios of life, you have certainly, and I, and I hope you have, you have asked the question, Lord, what are you doing? What are you teaching me? How are you working this situation, this circumstance out for your glory and for my good? I, I know that's what the scripture says. If you are like me, these are questions that you ponder all the time. Well, I don't want you to be scared of asking these questions. These are good questions to ask. You, you need to be asking those questions. Lord, what are you teaching me? Lord, what are you doing? Because inherent in those questions is the belief and the understanding that God is always working. He's, he's always working. It's what theologians call God's providence. It's this trust, this this confidence that assures us that, that God is intimately involved in every aspect of our lives. And not just in our lives, but in the entire world. That, that, that he is just not some distant deity that sits on a throne, created the world, set it in motion, has, has nothing to do with it, and is just sitting back waiting to see what happens. No, no, that's not the, the God that the, that, the Bible's, uh, that the Bible portrays for us. He is, he is near to us. He is involved. He is actively involved in the people that he has created and in the world that he has created. Paul in Acts 17, 28 says, For in him we live and move and have our being. In him, we live, we move, and, and Paul was talking about everybody. In him, we live, we move, and have our being. The prophet Jeremiah said in Jeremiah 20, 10 and 23, I know, O Lord, that you have, that, that the way of man is not in himself. That it is not in man who walks and directs his steps. Well, if it's not man who directs his steps, well, then who directs his steps? Well, Proverbs 16 and 1 tells us the plans of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. The, the Lord directs the steps of his people. Man plans his ways, but God orders their steps. There is always rhyme and reason with God. It, it may not make sense to us. It may leave us perplexed and asking several questions. It, it leaves us with more questions than answers, but God is not confused. He is not in the dark. There are no coinkydinks with God. Which brings us to our text this morning. When we look at the account that we find in Acts 11, 19-30, we are indeed observing the providential hand of God. 
This account helps us to see the purpose and the plans of God for, for the events that happen in earlier in Acts. What a blessing to us this morning. There is a theologian who, who said that if we observe, he, he who observes providence has providence to observe. Verse 19 of chapter 11 picks up where Luke left off in chapter 8, verse 1, by reminding us that there were those who had been scattered because of the persecution of Stephen. Just like we mentioned back in chapter 8, this was a, a terrible thing. Yes, the providence of God means that he is governing, that he is sustaining, that, and, and that he is preserving all things. But understand that the providence of God does not neglect the fact that there is sin and evil in the world. Persecution of the early church, and as a matter of fact, any persecution is, is not to be condoned or to be celebrated. But when you understand God's providence, you are able to say like Joseph told his brothers, what others meant for evil, God meant for good. Oh, but, but these circumstances, these situations, these difficult times, we must understand that there is pain in them. There's, there is agony. The difficult situations are, are real, and, and we don't want to make light of them or, or brush them off. When, when Jesus comes to Mary and Martha and Lazarus is dead, he doesn't tell them, oh, don't worry about it. What does Jesus do? He, he weeps. He weeps with them. And so as we hear about this persecution that plagued this early church, this persecution that is ultimately from the hand of God. We don't just simply brush over it because we know what happens next. No, we sympathize with these believers. We try to get into and understand the, the feelings and the emotions that they were going through because we understand that these probably are the emotions that we have and, and deal with on a regular basis. Put yourself there. Could you imagine living the, the good life in Jerusalem. You would spend time visiting the temple often for prayer, spend time with your family and your friends, but, but one day you are strolling by the temple and you, you hear some, some men preaching about a man named Jesus of Nazareth. And they are they are proclaiming that he is the Messiah that you and all the Jewish people have been longing for and waiting for. And they tell you that, that this Jesus, this Messiah, isn't, didn't come to, to set up a Roman government, and to, I mean to overthrow the Roman government and set up this Jewish state, but he came to die, to die for your sins and anyone who would trust and believe in him. 
And when you hear, when you heard that, that message, your, your heart was, was gripped. You were convicted of your sins and you knew you needed to repent. And so you placed your faith and your trust in Jesus. And, and then you find yourself entering into the waters of baptism. And then you are immersed into a community of believers. You're praying together, fellowshipping together, breaking bread together, sharing with one another. Your whole life, all of your value system has has just been changed. It's been radically affected. But you soon realize that this way of life is so different, it is so radical, it is costing you your family and your friends. People are being arrested. And then the the unthinkable happens. A brother who who you have worshipped with, whom you have fellowshiped with and, and, and broken bread with, who has served you, you find out that he is, he is stoned to death for proclaiming the name of Jesus. The, the name of this Savior whom you are now following. You're then forced to leave all of your friends, all of your family, all you've known because of this profession of faith. And you're on the run because you're in fear of losing your life. Can you imagine the questions? These questions would would come up. Why, Lord? What does this have to do with following you, Lord? Will I ever come back to Jerusalem? Will I ever see my family and my friends again? Where are you taking me? What will we do, Lord? No, in spite of these perplexing questions that I'm sure were were on the minds of these early believers as they are scattered because of the persecution of Stephen, these early believers show us how we respond to unfavorable circumstances and situations. We see the providence of God in persecution. We What what we do when these situations and these difficulties arise, we we put on gospel glasses. These believers were fleeing for their lives for fear of persecution. And they don't run and hide. They run and they preach. They don't look at their situation and, and wallow and begin to complain. Sure, they have questions, but they're these questions, they don't paralyze them. No, they, they see that this is another opportunity to share the good news of Jesus Christ with those who have not heard. The text tells us that they went speaking the word. They had witnessed the death of Stephen. They are scattered from their friends and family from the home that they have the only home that they have ever known, and instead of putting their head down and moping, and, and instead of being de- depressed and trying to figure out where, what this predicament was all about and where it would lead to, they reach into their pocket, 
and they put on their gospel glasses and they observe the providence of God. And they say, perhaps, text doesn't tell us this, but I can, I can, I can hear them saying, but perhaps God has scattered us so that we might scatter the gospel. These early believers put on the same glasses that, that Paul put on in Philippians. In Philippians chapter 1, Paul is in prison because he has been faithful to preaching and to proclaiming the gospel. And there are those who are talking bad about Paul. I mean, they're, they're, they're running his name through the mud and, and, and they're trying to undo everything that Paul has, has worked to build up. You would think that, that Paul would, would get angry and that he would seek to defend himself. Do you know what Paul does? In response to these men, Paul puts on gospel glasses. And he says, verse 12 of Philippians 1, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me, being put in prison, being, being uh, uh, ridiculed, what has happened to me has really, happened, has really served to advance the gospel. Paul puts on gospel lenses. He sees his circumstances in light of who God is and what God has done. Brothers and sisters, do you know that we get countless, countless opportunities day after day to put on gospel glasses? Too often, too often they stay in our pockets. They stay in our pockets and we don't see how God might be giving us an opportunity to proclaim the gospel or to speak the word to someone or some group who is in need of hearing it. Our gospel glasses stay in our pocket. I was thinking about this, that um, we know what sunglasses are, right? Sunglasses, when we put sunglasses on, it's to block the sun from coming in. Brothers and sisters, when you put on gospel glasses... It lets the sun come in. The, the sun, the gospel, illuminates our situation, and we begin to see our situation as God sees our situation in light of how Christ views it. Oh, what? We, we fail to see that God may be teaching us something. He may be he may be doing a work far greater than we could imagine. These scattered believers had no idea what would happen to them when they, when they left Jerusalem. They did not know what God would do, but they left. They fled with the gospel in their hearts and, and, and the gospel on their lips. And in God's providence... In God's providence, he would use the death of Stephen and these scattered believers to plant a church in Antioch. We see the providence of God in church planting. Remember, these new believers, unbeknownst to them, were being sent to, to Antioch for a reason. This, they, God had plans to plant a gentle a Gentile church in a strategic in a strategic region that 
would reach the world for his glory. That's his plan. Theologian has said, when, as we said earlier, when you, have, when you observe providence, you have providence to observe. And so Luke records for us how the Antioch church is birthed and church that would play. This church would play an instrumental role in the spread of the gospel to the world. In telling the story about how this church was birthed, Luke, Luke includes a small little detail that perhaps again helps us to see how God's hand is always at work. Look at verse 19 and 20. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. It appears that these, that these believers that had fled to Antioch, there, there were some who continued to think about the gospel spreading only along ethnic lines. This is not a Jewish thing. This is, this is not a, this is not a, I mean, this is a Jewish thing. It's not a Gentile thing. Evidently, the word about what had happened in Caesarea and at, at Cornelius' house had not, had not spread to them. They had, not, they had not heard this word, and so for some of them, they were only concerned about sharing the gospel with other Jews. Like we have learned and have been learning over the past several weeks, we often bring to the church our ethnic biases and think that is how we are to behave in the church. Well, as we have discovered over the last several weeks, that idea, that attitude is foolish. It's anti-gospel. To only share the gospel with those who look and sound like you is to misunderstand the gospel. It is to misunderstand the purposes and the plan of God. You see, if, if Antioch was to be reached with the gospel, this, this bustling, influential, multicultural city, if this city was going to be reached by the gospel, only Jews sharing with other Jews was not going to get it done. But once again, we observe the providence of God. Luke tells us that there were men and women from Cyprus and Cyrene who also found their way to Antioch. Now, we need to look at a map to understand what Cyp where Cyprus and Cyrene were. Well, you've got Jerusalem, and, and to, the, to the west of Jerusalem is, is Cyrene, which is in northern Africa. Cyprus was an island off to the, the, to the west, off the coast, to the west of Antioch. So supposedly these these, uh, these Jews, these believers had, had, had come down to Jerusalem and were in Jerusalem and heard the word of God proclaimed. They got saved. And when the persecution of Stephen happened, they spread and went north to Antioch. But it's interesting 
about these men and these women from Cyprus and Cyrene is that they were used to engaging and living among Greeks. And so they were not as tied to their ethnic identity as those who were raised in Jerusalem, born in Jerusalem, and lived in Jerusalem their, their, their whole life. These men and women were not only changed by the gospel, but they understood its implications. If, if I can be saved, if I can be saved, then anyone can be saved. Therefore, I don't just share the gospel with those who look and sound like me. I share it with any and everyone who is willing to listen. That's what the gospel does. These 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 men and women from Cyprus and Cyrene had a joy in their heart. They had been so impacted by the gospel that they wanted to share it with whoever. And they had no problem sharing it with with Greeks, with, with those who were not like them, with Gentiles, because they had engaged with them on a regular basis. Brothers and sisters, are you willing to listen this morning to the gospel call? Listen, anybody who who walks through the doors of East Point Church, anybody whom we come in contact with on a regular basis in in our daily lives, we are not discriminating. We want to proclaim the gospel to whoever is willing to hear and willing to listen. The question is, are you listening? Are you hearing the gospel that Jesus Christ of Nazareth was put to death on a Roman cross. Your sins were placed upon his head and God crushed him on your behalf. Oh, would you put your faith and your trust in him? Turn from your sins, repent. He has covered them with his precious blood. Oh, are you listening to the gospel this morning? We proclaim it to anyone who was willing to listen, who was willing to hear. Why do we do that? Because it is God who builds his church and not us. He builds it. I don't get to say who can and can't be part of his family. Jesus is the head. He is the bridegroom that chooses his bride. And oftentimes, oh, we... We think we know what a good bride looks like. Oh, Jesus picks up, picks a bride who, who is unlovable, doesn't, who isn't as, as, as fancy and nice as, as others. Oh, but he picks us. He chooses us. In case we don't get the point, Luke tells us this, says so in verse 21. And the hand of the Lord was with them. And a great number who believed turned to the Lord. Here is Luke reminding us that it is God who builds his church. Just like what happened in Jerusalem, what the church, uh, church experienced in Jerusalem, God's hand was with these believers and he added to the church in a great number. 
oh, we shouldn't skip over that phrase. The hand of the Lord was with them. I mean, this is the power of God with them. This is God doing the work. Listen, there is great temptation to steal glory from God when we are met with success in evangelism or ministry. There is a great temptation to say, oh, man, I just shared that gospel presentation so well. Oh, man, I was able to refute all of their reasoning and their questions. I was able to answer all of their questions. Look at me. Maybe I should go out and do this more often. We can't take credit. This this phrase has been in my mind the last couple of weeks. Without God, you can do nothing. I mean, do you understand? That's why we pray. (laughs) Without God, you can do nothing. Nothing. It was his power at work in these believers. He opens the hearts. He's the one that added to his church. And like he is always pleased to do, and I don't understand why he does it, but he chooses to do so through the means of broken Sinful people who are tempted to steal his glory. Oh, I thank God that he is the one who built his church and not me. He planted a church providentially through his power in Antioch. And then we see that God in his Providence provides a faithful proponent. A revival is breaking out in the city. I mean, folks are getting saved. He's adding to his church. And the, the word, or the, the work that's happening in Antioch spreads to the church in Jerusalem just like it, like it did in Caesarea, what, what happened at Cornelius' house. The, the word carries and, and, and comes quickly. And so the church in Jerusalem gets word and they say, well, we've got to send someone there to encourage the saints, to check out the work that is taking place in Antioch. Well, who does the church, church send? They send Barnabas. They send Barnabas. Now, why do they send Barnabas? I had a couple of reasons throughout this week trying to think about why did they send Barnabas. And the best reason I could come up with was because he was Barnabas. It's because he was Barnabas. I mean, there is something, there are a couple of things that have struck me as we've been going through the book of Acts. And I don't think I realized before until studying through the book of Acts what a gift Barnabas is to the church. I mean, most people don't even know Barnabas. But as you read his life and what he and how he gave to the church in Acts, I mean, Barnabas is, uh, I mean, uh, it's, he is to be emulated. He is to be uh, um, honored. There are a few of his spiritual fervor and character in the scriptures. 
we, we, we actually really don't have to guess why they sent Barnabas. Luke tells us in verse 24, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. This is the language that was used of, uh, of, of Stephen, the language that was used of Philip and the others who were chosen as, as deacons, as the first deacons to, to serve the, the church. As we have said before, that this, this, this uh, um, full of the Holy Spirit and, and of faith speaks clearly to the work of God being wrought in the life of Barnabas. He has been, he has been empowered by the Spirit to trust and to, to believe and to serve and to, to encourage what a gift when, when the church in Jerusalem thinks about who are they going to send to Antioch. They don't send an apostle. They send Barnabas. Well, brothers and sisters, we should, we should pray to stri- and strive to have a church full of Barnabases. Men and women who are full of the Holy Spirit, and full of faith. Where there is tangible fruit in their life, and when a need arises, they are available. The church calls them, and they they go to serve the body. Not, Not looking for the spotlight, but wanting to play the background. Because that's what we see Barnabas doing. The reason we don't know much about Barnabas or talk much about Barnabas is because Barnabas wasn't concerned about Barnabas. He wasn't trying to make a name for himself. He was trying to make a name for Christ, to exalt the name of Christ. Letting his life be used in service to God. And in Barnabas going to Antioch, we once again see the providence of God. For, for Barnabas demonstrates that he was and is the right man for the job. He recognizes and see that, sees that there was indeed a work that took place in Antioch. He's encouraged by it. He, 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 he loves and is amazed at the work that God is, has done there. So he does what the apostles knew he would do. He encourages them. He tells them to to remain faithful. He encourages them. That's that's why the the apostles sent him. That's why the apostles uh, uh, um, named him Barnabas. His his real name is Joseph. Barnabas was a a, a nickname. We we learned that in Acts chapter 4. This was a nickname that meant son of encouragement. So we, we see that God sent them Barnabas to encourage them, and he, and he does what he, his name reflects. It's amazing that they send the right person because it, this church needed to be encouraged. It needed to be strengthened because this would be a multicultural body of believers, Jews and Gentiles worshiping together in one church. And so he exhorts them to to press on, to to keep going. 
the providence of God, they have a faithful proponent, proponent of the Lord Jesus Christ, who would be for them, who would be encouraging them to remain faithful to the word of God. Then we see God's providence in a partnership. Not only is Barnabas the right man for the job because he is true to his name and he, and he encourages the people, but as the providence of God would have it, Barnabas had developed a relationship with a man whom God chose to take the gospel to the Gentiles. Do you remember that happening? Do you remember back in chapter 9 when the disciples in Jerusalem didn't believe that Saul had become a follower of Jesus Christ. This persecutor of the church, no way has he become a follower of Jesus Christ. Do you remember who spoke up for him? It was Barnabas. Barnabas spoke up to him. Spoke up for him. And do you know what happens after the church recognizes Saul's conversion is in fact true? And after Barnabas sticks up for him, you know what happens? Paul starts an argument with the Hellenists in Jerusalem. And and his life is threatened. And what does Saul have to do? He has to flee from Jerusalem. And he ultimately ends up back home in Tarsus. Do you know where Tarsus is? It's within walking distance to Antioch. Quinky dink. Providence of God. Barnabas sees that there is a work taking place in Antioch. And he's like, I need help. I need help. The church is growing by leaps and bounds. Who is going to help me? So he goes to his dear friend Saul, whom he knows God has set apart to take the gospel to the Gentiles who are in Antioch. He brings Paul over to Antioch, and they begin to work. They go to work, teaching and ministering among the newly established church in Antioch. And as Luke will show us and tells us, their labors aren't, they're not in vain. Remember, this is no coincidence that this church is planted in Antioch. God, in his providence, established this church in a multicultural city. John Stott says this about Antioch. Jews, Asians, and Romans form the, the mixed multitude of what Josephus called the third city of the empire after Rome and Alexandria. So this is a multicultural city, third largest after Rome and Alexandria. The city was prime for the gospel to take root and to spread like wildfire. And so if this city is a multi- multicultural city, and the text tells us that the, as the gospel is, is going forth, God is adding to his church in great numbers, then it is, then it is evident. It only makes sense that this church would be full of diversity, full of 
of various cultures. God was showing the world. God was showing the world that he was creating a new people. A people that would be distinct from the world and who the world would take notice of and glorify him. Look at verse 26. And when, they, when he had found him, when, when, when uh, um, uh, um, Barnabas had found Saul, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Now, it is important to note that this name, that, these, that this name that we hear here, Christians, this wasn't a, a designation that the Christians gave to themselves. This wasn't something that they gave to themselves. It was a, a term that was imposed on them from outsiders, which which tells you that that this body of believers was distinct. They were were different. They They were so impacted by the gospel and made such an impact in the city that others started noticing them and saying, well, they're not, they don't act like Gentiles and they sure don't act like Jews. Well, let's create a new category. Let's call them Christian because they are Christ followers. I think I came to the conclusion that one of the main reasons why people took notice of them is because of the fact that they were people from various cultures worshiping together, serving one another, glorifying God to one another, and it just did not make sense. They, they needed their own category. Here are Christians. John 13, 34 through 35 says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. It is easy. It's not hard to love people that look like you, who act like you, who talk like you. It's easy to love those people. If this church was a whole bunch of Phillips, I, I mean, I'd love you all. <laughs> it's hard to love those that don't look like you, who are different than you, who come from a different culture than you. Here God tells us to love one another. Because he expects that his, his, his body would be diverse, would, would be made up of multi, multi, would be multicultural. And that when the world sees it, they would say, wow, why are they loving one another? And they would know that we are his disciples. Here are these new believers in Christ being obedient to his command. And those around them are taking notice. This group is different. They are Christ followers. They are distinct from the world and the cities, the the officials, the other people in Antioch are taking notice. 
How about us, church? Does the city of East Point look at us and say, hmm, that's different. Hmm, why are they together in a middle school worshiping on Sunday? Various cultures, various backgrounds, why are they different? Why, is the, why is, uh, are, are, are they being kind neighbors? Why do they have a concern for the city? Why are they so concerned with exalting and proclaiming Christ? Oh, brothers and sisters, you know, in our day and age, Christian can mean a lot of different things. Are we distinct? Do people just see what goes on in prosperity churches on on TV and say, oh, yeah, East Point Church is just like them? Or are we different? Oh, we're called to be. Here is this church in Antioch, different. They're different, and others take notice of it been so impacted by the gospel that it is having a ripple effect within the community they live. But not only that, not only is the community in which they live being impacted by the gospel, the church at large is benefiting. Luke, at the end of our text, tells us that a prophet from Jerusalem came to Antioch and and foretold that there was going to be a famine coming. And so, in response to this news, the, the church at Antioch prepares a gift. They prepare a gift to send to their brothers and sisters in need. Now, understand that this famine would have affected them as well. This, this would have affected them, but, but do you notice what they do? They don't start worrying and asking questions, well, when is it coming? What are we to do? No. Just like those who were scattered from Jerusalem, just like Paul, they put on their gospel glasses and say, what is the Lord teaching us? What is the Lord doing? And you know what? The answer came very, very quickly. It came very quickly. He is giving us an opportunity to serve. He is giving us an opportunity to be generous to our brothers and sisters in Christ. He is giving us an opportunity to count others more highly than ourselves. We are receiving an opportunity to imitate our Savior who met us and provided for us in our time of need. So what did they do? Each one of them, according to his own ability, gave so that the needs of their brothers in Christ in another region could be cared for. Oh, do you see that the, the, the difference the gospel makes, not only in community, but in the body of believers, do you recognize the importance of teaching? For, for, for Barnabas the encourager, do you remember what he did in Acts 4? He gave sacrificially. That's how we're first introduced to Barnabas. He gave, he sold his 
land and gave it to the church. Here they are teaching these believers, imitating, imitating, and being a, a benefit to the church at large. For, Bar, Paul, uh, for, for Barnabas and Saul had committed their lives to teaching these believers the word, and God made them not only hearers of the word, but doers. He made them doers. We have a multicultural church in Antioch that God, we will see in chapter 13, sends out Paul, who was once Saul, but now Paul, and Barnabas on a missionary journey that would seek to take the gospel to the world. And all of this started with the persecution of Stephen and a few no-name missionaries whom God used to begin a work in the city of Antioch. He who observes providence has providence to observe. Started with Stephen, but really, in reality, it started in Genesis 3 and 15 when God promised that he would save a people for his glory from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Oh, when you look at the Bible, you see that it's God's providential hand seeking to accomplish his plan. He didn't just uh, set up, create the, the world and let it go. No, he is intimately involved working his planned for his glory and for our good. That is amazing. He's involved in the world, but he's involved in your life too. All of us have these various circumstances that we're wondering, God, what are you doing? Oh, put on your gospel, your gospel glasses and, and see them the way God sees them and says, and say, maybe this is an opportunity for me to share the gospel. Maybe God is teaching me something. Lord, what are you teaching me? Oh, perhaps he is using that situation to spark, to ignite a movement, a church, a missionary. For his glory. He who observes providence has providence to observe and glorifies God because of it. 